Hello and welcome to this special year ahead edition of On Point, a podcast series where we explore the post-pandemic economy and the biggest themes and events shaping the outlook in 2022. I'm Imogen Bakra, European Rate Strategist at NatWest Markets, and I'm joined today by Galvin Chia, Pei Chen Lu, and Brian Dangerfield for a discussion on the China's common prosperity and what this might mean for Chinese and global growth and beyond. So Pei Chen, let's start with you and a bit of background. Why is common prosperity such a big deal for China? Thank you, Imogen, for having me today. So common prosperity was a term raised by President Xi Jinping in mid-2021. Uh, and we think that this is a paramount shift in China's policymaking, which overturned the policy goal of letting some people get rich first for the past few decades, which was first raised by uh, then paramount leader Deng Xiaoping. So this shift away from uh, letting some people get rich to common prosperity means uh, the, the government will stop chasing after high growth rates at all costs, and they'll shift towards a goal of having higher quality and more inclusive growth. Since China's top-down economic model has worked so successfully in the past few decades, we think that this also means perhaps a bureaucratic level reform, whereby local government officials will no longer be uh, pressured under lofty GDP targets. Instead, the policy priorities going forward from here will probably revolve towards risk management, debt management in the short term, some bottom line stability, as well as more importantly, better income distributions. So from an economic standpoint, there is a risk of lowering growth expectations from the top leaders. And therefore, we think there are more downside risks to China's growth rates. And there might be a faster shift towards a long-term potential growth of 5 to 5.5% in the next few years. From a political standpoint, since President Xi Jinping has raised the term common prosperity, that increased expectations from the markets that President Xi will be well on path for his third term, which will break the norm from Chinese political landscape. So that means politics will likely to be more assertive from the top, and that we have seen a hint of that from the regulatory crackdown from mid-2021. Uh, and we think that will probably well last into 2022, but on a more optimistic side, we probably see more domestic predictability and more co communication towards market on the policy thinking on regulatory crackdowns. And finally, from an industrial policy standpoint, China will likely to continue to carry on its five-year plans and will, that will hold a central uh, dominance over policy making and policy thinking. So the latest uh, five-year plan has been released in 2021 and which lasts well until 2025. So we think that sectors like high-end manufacturing, AI, new energy, will likely to be the main focus in terms of policy priorities in the next few years. So how do you see this um, policy stimulus and the landscape for China's growth shaping the global economy in 2022? So just to set scene on China's growth in 2022, we actually have uh, become more pessimistic over the growth rates in terms of uh, growth in 2022. So we think that it's likely that China will slow down to around 5% in 2022, rather than you know, a pre-pandemic level of around 6%. So the higher tolerance of lower growth 
naturally means less expectations for easing. From a cyclical perspective, China's growth has slipped below its potential growth of 5% in Q3 and Q4 this year. So we're expecting some policy normalization in terms of counter-cyclical policies early next year, but we don't have high hopes on aggressive stimulus or the old-style flat-style stimulus. Instead, we think the policy will revolve around deleveraging at the same time, stabilize the growth rate at around 5%. So policy in terms of monetary policy will probably lean dovish. We don't expect rate cuts, but we do expect more support in terms of liquidity. For fiscal policy, we don't expect aggressive tax cuts, neither do we expect aggressive infrastructure spending, but we do see the potential for some new infrastructure to be accelerated in terms of, uh, and supported by local government bond issuances. So, Galvin, how do you see this mattering for the rest of the world? Thanks, Imogen. I think following on from some of the points that Peichen has made, there are two key uh, takeaways uh, for, for the rest of the world and for the rest of the region. Number one is the fact that China's uh, growth slowdown is consistent with this idea, with the fact that its contributions to global GDP will actually be the lowest in over 10 years. And this is one of the first times in over 10 years that we will see uh, uh, economies like uh, Western economies, developed economies like the US, the UK and the Eurozone actually contribute more to global GDP than China. The next bit, the, the, the following implication from this will be that China will be, of course, less of a net support for commodities. Patreon has already hinted at this with this idea of deleveraging and focusing less uh, on this sort of uh, bottom line, you know, hard line GDP growth target. So that from, from that perspective, China will still be a very large consumer of commodities being such a large economy on the global stage. But the impetus for, for the shift in, in, in increasing commodity demand, you know, China as a source of marginal commodity demand will certainly be less. And I think then the read through for the commodity cycle and for emerging markets, which are very closely related to the commodity cycle, will, will then becomes a lot clearer. China becoming less of a net support for commodities will mean that we don't see uh, an additional leg up in the commodity cycle. So given that commodity prices are still high uh, uh, and sustained, we don't see that China's Chinese demand will fuel additional increases in commodity prices. And from there, then, I think the, the read-through, uh, we think that the read-through then to emerging markets then will be a lot less subdued. I think broadly, we have seen throughout 2021 a period of divergent performance between, say, emerging market uh, uh, FX performance and emerging market uh, export performance. Emerging market exports have actually tracked commodities a lot closer than emerging market FX has. And I think then the sort of putting to those two components together is that we'd expect emerging markets FX to continue to lag the commodity cycle uh, and China, again, to be less of a support for the commodity cycle as well. So thinking about it from a trade perspective then, because you know Chinese trade has performed quite solidly over the pandemic, what do you think is the read through to global trade and supply chains and will um, inflation or even deflation be um, part of this? Yeah, I think that's a really uh, interesting point. You know, we've had some people uh, raise questions with us and we had some debates within the team as well about whether or not uh, this is idea of common prosperity shifting towards a sort of more domestic, uh, inward-looking uh, policy and growth stance as opposed to its historic, you know, outward-looking uh, export policy stance. You know, is that going to mean that China is going to be produ producing less stuff 
for the world to consume? And does that mean that then prices will then go up uh, because China's producing less stuff uh, to export? I think over the sort of short to medium terms, we don't think that common prosperity will be a source of global inflationary worries. Uh, uh, you know, g- given that uh, prices everywhere are rising and high, it's easy to pin the blame uh, on, on anything and everything that might, you know, uh, uh, cause sort of uh, worries about prices. But we don't think this is the case. I think that there's sort of two reasons that underpin our thinking there. The first reason is that if we look at this idea of China not producing as much cheap stuff, you know, uh, sources of cheap manufactured goods shifting elsewhere out of China into the rest of the region, that's already happened. We've seen that quite clearly, and and in in what in in our analysis, we look uh, quite we look briefly uh, at the role of uh, garments and textiles. And it's a well-known fact that garments and textiles, you know, some of the sort of uh, sources of fairly cheap, low-value add manufactured goods in the global in global supply chains have actually started to shift out of China uh, for the better part of the 2010s into regional centers like Vietnam and Bangladesh. And you know, combined with that fact, we've actually noticed. In, in both the developed markets and the emerging markets, not just uh, from you know, day-to-day experiences, but also if you look at some of the statistics, inflation there hasn't actually shifted uh, to a large uh, degree. So I think if you take that parallel, this idea that manufacturing will shift to lower cost, will, will sort of um, manufacturing and business decisions will shift to lower cost jurisdictions uh, uh, as part of you know, these sort of economic and business decisions anyways, uh, that's not a source of concern. The the second thing I think is that is is this idea that China is still in the shorter term still very much opportunistic when it comes to you know said business decisions and 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 decisions to man- continue manufacturing right throughout the source of the pandemic we've seen that Chinese export share of manufactured goods has actually increased you know what with uh, their their decision to to capture more market share in things like PPE uh, and electronics so I think that is 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 one of the notable dynamics. Uh, in, in in prices and inflation, sort of not seeing an additional upward shock because of China's decision uh, to implement things like you know uh, dual circulation or common prosperity. I think just to touch quickly on, on the second point, this idea that Chinese trade has performed solidly. I think we're expecting Chinese trade to continue to perform better uh, uh, over the course of 2022 as well. Uh, uh, our economists, including Pei Chen, have talked about this idea that shortages in manufacturing supply chains and, and sort of these supply chains globally uh, are likely to persist into 2022, at least solidly in the first half. And I think China, as mentioned, you know, given the fact that they've been opportunistic in capturing so much of this supply chain uh, um, uh, share, uh, it's going to continue to do so. I think the implication there as well is that we're expecting uh, the Chinese renminbi, uh, you know, the offshore CNH will continue to remain stable broadly against uh, the dollar as a comp- on, on the combination of these trade dynamics uh, and, of course, monetary policy settings, which, which, which prefer it to remain stable. But also, I think the implication then is that when we see CNH against a basket of its manufacturing peers, uh, uh, you know, the, the CFETS basket, uh, that's going to continue to perform uh, quite solidly as well into 2022. Thanks, Calvin. So over to you then, Brian. Last but certainly not least, what um, implications are there for US-China trade relations? Is this kind of risking seeing a return to a trade war or what are your thoughts on that? Thanks very much for having me, Chen. We don't think we're going to see a return to the trade wars, certainly not to the Trump-style trade war that really dominated 2018 and 2019. 
sort of, I would say, two main drivers for this, at least from the U.S. side, one that we've known for a while and one that's relatively new. The one that we've known for a while is that President Biden's style is much different than President Trump's style when it comes to the uh, possibility of sudden escalation. We know President Trump was much more unpredictable. His willingness to escalate via tweet was something that really kept market participants and importers uh, on edge about the possibility of sudden escalations. President Biden's style is much more predictable, albeit not necessarily easier. I think we've seen that over the course of the year. Uh, over the course of 2021, Biden has made no meaningful moves to get rid of the tariffs that Trump put on at the height of the trade war, even though he criticized them on the campaign trail. So the Trump style escalation in the trade war, which we think was really the most market, the mo most market sensitive, really pressing issue, we've had the strong sense for a while that even if the trade relationship between the US and China stayed tense, which it has, that that kind of escalation was gonna be very unlikely uh, simply due to a change in the style and the change in the dynamic under Biden, who wants to use more international cooperation um, in his, um, you know, uh, in his approach to U.S.-China trade relations, and having more international cooperation means differing views, differing priorities for different jurisdictions. Europe and the U.S. have different uh, exposures on the trade front to China, and so that creates differences, and that all takes time. You can't have a big escalation when you're trying to have a lot of cooks in the kitchen, it's hard to have that kind of escalation. So that's something we've known for a while and that's really underpinned our view. What's happened more recently is that the very high global inflation picture has made it very unappealing to re-engage in trade war specifically as regards to tariffs. So think about President Trump had a low and stable inflation environment and high relatively high US growth when he was embarking on the ever escalating trade war. President Biden is in a completely different situation right now. Headline inflation uh, as of the October print is at its highest level, headline level since 1990. And inflation is really the talk of the town right now. And the goal at the moment is to try and lower inflation as much as you can. And so using tariffs, escalating tariffs, pushing the tariff side of the trade war even if Biden's wanted to do that, it's very politically inopportune moment to try and push aggressively on tariffs. And that's an important point as we think about the future of phase one. We're coming up on the two-year anniversary of President Trump's signing of the phase one deal, which is you know, really the hallmark of that deal was China's commitment to goods purchases. Now, they're behind on those targets, though everyone on this call knows that there was a global pandemic that happened in between the signing of the deal and today. So maybe it's not surprising to think that as the entire world has changed, China hasn't met with those commitments. And so um, there is this question of what happens when the trade deal sort of comes up for a renewal period and China hasn't really fully met those commitments. We think the likely outcome is simply going to be a continuation without escalation for those two reasons. The first one is Biden's predisposition and the second is inflation just doesn't call for it. Um, we just got a, a came off of a mid-November summit between uh, President Biden and President Xi, and I think that really set the tone for a lot of what we're going to see next year, which is um, commitments to a more positive tone 
but a lack of real deliverables and a lack of major escalation or de-escalation uh, from both sides. Uh, I think that's going to be the base case through much of 22. And for what it's worth, um, uh, the respondents to our NetWest Markets Investor Survey think the same. You know, when we asked what the largest risk to growth in China in 2022 is, uh, none of our participants answered U.S.-China trade or revival of trade growth. So that view is the consensus, and I think it's a very strong consensus, and it has very good reasons for why that's the consensus. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Brian. Well, thank you all for joining me, and I hope that all viewers and listeners enjoyed today's special episode of On Point. To get more insight on the year ahead, please navigate to ci.natwest.com forward slash year ahead and follow us on social media or feel free to get in touch with any of us via Bloomberg or on email. Thanks.